listening to Jam Squared. 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 Welcome, welcome back, one and all, to your favorite podcast, JM Squared. Come on. I'm so happy that you're able to join us another time for JM Squared. And thank you for tuning in. This is your boy, Mark. This is your boy, Joyson. And where is Moses? Where is the other M? I don't know, brother. Always disappearing. <laughs> Always disappearing. But so guess, good. Shout but, out to Mo one time. I know. Shout out to him. I know he's, he's putting in work wherever he is. For real. And guys, one thing about us, even if you don't see our people, you know that we're putting in work. For real. We're hard at work doing what we have to do. For real, and for real. we have a guest. Guys, one thing about our guests, what do we always say, Joyson? People of quality. 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 Come on. So some of you guys might not even know, but I'm I'm taking some courses right now. I'm in Bible Bible school. You know, I have to follow the, mm. the ways of, of the theologian. My brother. You know what I mean? We love to say it. And that that's it. We've we've been learning a lot and um right now I, I even have the pleasure to introduce one of our one of the academic deans, the academic dean for wow. the school, actually. I know, guys, this is not a, wow. this, this is a, a amazing, amazing professor, but just a little bit about him. So he is, um, actually, you know what, rather than me trying to introduce him, we'll just bring him on and let for him real. introduce himself. So guys, without any further delay, I'd like to introduce to you Professor... Dr. Michael Reardon. Come on, guys. Yeah. Make some noise for him. Dr. Reardon. Yes. Uh, well, thank you for having me on. Um, I really enjoyed the intro of the podcast, actually. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I guess a very brief introduction. Then I can get into, I guess, the podcast. Uh, so, I'm the academic dean of Canada Christian College. I'm also the professor of New Testament and historical theology. And then in a separate venue, I'm also the director of the Exine Institute for Jewish-Christian Relations. So um, my academic interests kind of have a wide range. Um, I'm interested in uh, specifically Pauline texts. I'm interested in the reception of those texts over the past 2,000 years. Right. I'm interested in the intersections of Jewish and Christian theology. Right. And then for the topic of today's podcast, I'm, I'm very much um, interested in specifically approaches to interpreting scripture and uh, biblical interpretation. That's amazing. Powerful. Honestly, that is very powerful. So even before we even go any further, what season are we in of the podcast? Just so we correlate all of this, because it makes sense, right? For real. We have to bring in somebody who knows the word, yeah. and studies the word, and 100%, teaches the word. 100%. To talk about the word. So what are we in yeah, this season so, for? Um, this season is called Minister to Orthodoxy. And basically, we discuss uh, various theological um, topics that are re- re- relevant to the church. And uh, we just kind of discuss... Uh, the evolution of different, I guess, theological views throughout time. And uh, obviously, the church has been here for over 2,000 years, and there has been a lot of different reformation and different beliefs, different theological systems to approach scriptures. And we just want to discuss things from, uh, obviously, a Christian perspective, but also from the societal point of view as well. But if we have guests that can present things from more... Right, uh, academic point of view. 
Definitely. In light of this season, it's a it's a blessing. So it's a blessing. Thank you for coming on, Professor. It's, a, it's an honor. And yeah, thank you for having me. And even before we even go any further, sometimes people don't even realize the behind the scenes, the stress <laughs> to try to put together one podcast. <laughs> Some serious work, eh? It, it's it's really been a, a serious fight because we've been trying and trying and trying <laughs> to connect with Professor Reardon. And there's been conflicts of schedules, but we really do appreciate it that you would make time to grace us with his presence on the podcast, right? For real. So, <laughs> um, even just just a little bit more about yourself for our listeners, Professor. So, um, can you just share a little bit about how you first got involved into um, theology, or even from the beginning? You can actually start from the beginning let's rewind all the way to the beginning so um can you please just share a little bit about your testimony how um you became a christian and became involved in academia sure yeah i'll try and keep it short the one thing about professors is if you give us an open mic we could speak two or three hours no problem so, three hours. Uh, but i'll keep it within a <laughs> so I'll keep it within a couple minutes. So um, I grew up in a Christian household in the States. So I'm actually uh, American. I, I immigrated to Canada 11 years ago. Wow. Um, however, in junior high, high school, and the beginning of university, I was very disillusioned with the faith. Um, at that point, um, people around me would definitely have considered me a militant atheist. Um, and I was just living a life um, completely diametrically opposed to anything remotely Christian, first of all, and even more than that, um, even perhaps my secular friends who are not Christians, they would even view me as very poor in terms of ethics and morality and this type of thing. Really? Um, and it was in the second year of university, um, and, you know, looking back on these types of events, we can say that the Lord has arranged our lives in purposeful and sovereign and wonderful ways. So looking back on that year, um, the Lord just systematically stripped all of the things in my life that I thought um, were worthwhile, that I was working toward, uh, that I was enjoying. Right. And I came to a point um, one particular night as I came into my apartment uh, at that time, um, just a few months prior, I felt like I was on top of the world. Really? And when I came into my apartment that night, this thought just kind of went through my head. Um, you know, if you lived or died at this moment, it wouldn't really matter. Wow. Um, and it, you know, not just, you know, it wasn't like a mental health crisis by any means. I wasn't yeah. like suicidal, but I just had this realization that everything I had done in my life, for the past several years, it was meaningless. Vanity. Um, it was just vanity of vanities, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, when I uh, walked into my living room, uh, on my coffee table was a Bible that I had not touched uh, in in a long time. So my mom had given it to me <laughs> as a gift when I went to university. Wow. Um, but yeah, I just wasn't interested in it and. Anyways, I, through that evening, I had a direct encounter with God. Uh, I basically challenged him. And to try and go into the story would actually require like a whole other podcast. But long story short, 
in the trans, uh, about four or five hours of communicating with God and, and going through scripture. Um, I was completely transformed in the span of a single evening. So from roughly about two thirty AM to about 8 AM, wow. uh, of, of overnight. And, uh, through that experience and yeah, it was a super, you know, it was a supernatural experience with God through that experience. Um, I was saved and, um, I also consecrated the rest of my life to the Lord. Basically the deal that I made with the Lord was for all these years, you've preserved my life. Um, there are many different events and occurrences where I could have died, um, where, where things could have gone sideways in various ways. Um, but he preserved me despite me continuing to speak out against him, despite me actively trying to cause Christians to lose their faith. And so, um, yeah, I just told the Lord that from this day on, my life is yours. Mm. So then just to fast forward it a bit, because I'm already taking a bit long. Um, I, (laughs) I, um, yep. That's the thing. Five minute sermons don't last five minutes, (laughs) 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 but, um, but yeah, I uh, graduated university at that time uh, with a bachelor's of business administration. I gave myself to go do a bit of missionary work in Sri Lanka. Uh, after that, I went to a Bible school in California where I met my wife. Wow. Um, and so she's Canadian. And at that time, um, my mom was actually living in Russia. She was working for the State Department. Uh, she's also a professor. And... I didn't really have family in the U.S. at that time, so uh, my wife has, you know, close to 100 relatives in the greater Toronto area, wow. so it was kind of a no-brainer to move up here with her. Right. Uh, we got married. Um, we had our first child. I was serving in campus ministry for about seven years, wow. and um, during the time I was serving in campus ministry, I did a brief stint in law school, and then after... Um, well, I didn't finish that. So after uh, my first couple semesters of law school, um, I received what I would consider my second supernatural speaking from the Lord. So, you know, obviously I pray every day. And, and as we pray, we have these inward confirmations from the Lord where it's kind of this soft feeling. But it's not like a direct speaking, right? right. Um, but when I was in law school, I received this second kind of supernatural occurrence with God uh, where he just told me, very explicitly, you gave my life to me uh, several years ago, and now you're kind of turning away and pursuing law. This is your own feeling. This is your own desire. This is not what I've called you to do. Um, so as a result of that, I withdrew from law school, um, and I enrolled in, at the University of Toronto in a master's of theological studies, so and I serious. finished that degree while I was... Yep. I just have a quick question. So with all of that, I I really like to get the context of everything that's going on with the story, right? Because that's from your perspective and knowing you and hearing how you, you speak, very eloquent, right? But how did, mm-hmm. your, how did your family and your friends react to you making that decision to go to law school? Because that's a big deal, right? And then one day you just say, I, I had an encounter and... I have to drop out. <laughs> so were, were your family yeah. friends supportive? Or were they looking at you like you're confused and crazy? Or what was that conversation like? I think a lot of my friends, um, because I, you know, I have a mixed 
group of friends, right? Some are Christian, some are not Christian. But I would say my friends almost universally save a few. Like the, I would say my closest friends, because they know me, they know that I'm serious when I say things that I had to like Um Well, I, I'd say the vast majority thought I was kind of crazy. Um, and I, I, you know, I kind of left some pieces of that story. So I got into... Uh, it was the first year um, that that this law school and accompanying business school had had a three year JD MBA program. So normally, if you take the degree separately, it's five years. They introduced this three year program. Right. Um, I got in on a full scholarship. Wow. So uh, from their standpoint, for me to give that up sounded um, insane. <laughs> um, but. And, you know, and, I, and I was doing quite well. Like I was already on track to get a, uh, I mean, it wasn't guaranteed, but I was on track to get a one L scholarship, uh, which is, is very, very difficult and rare to get. Um, I was like one L internship. So after your first year of law school, um, the majority of law students aren't able to get placed in very good firms, um, but a small percentage are able to. And, and I was on a, on a good track to do that. Um, so that's my friend's side. On the family side, my mom was cautiously supportive. I mean, she's a devout Christian, and, and I was in campus ministry choir, so she wasn't against it by any means. But you know, at the same time, for a mom, like you, you feel like you, you know, your son is on a good trajectory to be stable and this type of thing. Right. Um, my wife. It was a hard conversation for about a day, wow. but. Again, my wife is a devout Christian. Um, she's always supported me in campus ministry and in other various aspects, all the way through my theological education and my work today. So you know, it was it was a difficult afternoon, let's just say, where she was just caught off caught off guard, right? And and on my side, to be fair, I didn't present it in the best way. Like I just kind of like gave her a quick phone call. I was like, oh, I've had this experience. Like I need to drop out. Right? It's like it wasn't much of a, a conversation. Yeah. So, but, but, but she was very supportive. Uh, her parents were very supportive. They're also devout Christians. And actually my mother-in-law, her brother served, uh, in full-time ministry in the Philippines. Um, so, so there wasn't, uh, at least within my personal universe of those closest to me, everyone was quite supportive, uh, almost immediately. So it wasn't too much of an issue. Um, and yeah, so that's quite rare. And I, you know, I think the Lord even, you know, well, not not even. The Lord clearly arranges all of our environments, including our family and, and these types of things. So uh, when he spoke to me in that way, he also provided the way to do it. Like, no matter how, no matter how explicitly the Lord speaks to us, if we're married and our spouse doesn't want us to do it, it becomes very difficult, right? So, so the Lord prepared the exact right arrangement for this to be made possible. And so, yeah, I began at the University of Toronto um, afterwards, uh, did their master's of theological studies degree uh, through Wycliffe College, graduated, was still doing campus ministry at the time, um, then began my PhD. And after my first year of my PhD, uh, I met a faculty member from Canada Christian College who was actually in my PhD cohort. So his name is Jeff Yana. Shout out, um, Mr. Jeff. He, uh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> and so he did, he finished his doctorate at Canada Christian College, but then he decided he wanted to get a second doctorate in the University of Toronto. <laughs> oh. So, um, so we ended up in the same advanced Greek class 
And, um, anyway, long story short, been talking about this for a while. I just told him, you know, if they ever have a teaching position at the college, let me know. Uh, he, at that time when we talked, he thought that there would be no position available. But within a few weeks, he called me and, uh, and he's like, oh, SOS, this is urgent. And then SOS. I picked up the phone call. Yeah, like, because basically at that time, the college had had their Greek professor. He either retired or passed away. I actually forget the story at this point, but they sent out like a, uh, an emergency email to all of the faculty saying, if you know anyone who can teach Greek, please connect with us immediately That's because as you're well aware, Mark, Greek one is required for all our bachelor students, right? It. So, so they, so they can't have a semester go by where they don't have a Greek professor on staff. So, exactly. um, so I got, and actually what was crazy is I received that phone call from Jeff and I was leaving for an international trip the next day wow. uh, in the evening. And so he called me. I said, if you can get me an interview in the morning, I'll do it. I came in, did the interview same day they hired me. I left for my trip <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And then the following semester I began teaching at college, but I, you know, I was only teaching one course. Um, then the following semester, the Hebrew professor retired. I took over Hebrew. Um, and yeah, uh, by the time the COVID lockdown hit, I was teaching four or five courses a semester, but again, just, just as kind of like an adjunct professor on contract semester to semester. Um, but yeah, in, uh, July of 2020, um, I just had this inward stirring in me from the Lord. Oh, sorry. I left out one part of the story. In April of 2020, the college actually offered me a full-time professorship, but I turned it down at the time because I was quite invested in campus ministry still. And in July of 2020, though, the Lord began to stir me a bit, saying, you know, I've kind of led you to go through this degree. You really need to go back to the college and see um, about perhaps seeing if that job is still available, this type of thing. So I came back. Long story short, um, what began as a conversation just about a professorship kind of turned into them offering me the job as academic dean. Um, and then, yeah, since then I've just been with the college. Um, you know, I think in whatever situation we're in, we should always try to, um, improve and create and build. And so every semester, every year I'm here, try to create new courses, try to, you know, upgrade curriculum and, um, and yeah, and that's how we cross paths, Mark. So, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> and and now I'm on your podcast. Fast forward all the way to today. So. <laughs> Who would have thought? Who thought? <laughs> that's amazing, honestly. And um, one thing that correlated with me and really stuck with me. I'm gonna let my brother Joyson speak, but um, just the importance of having the right people around you, right? Because um, it was through Professor Jeff that. Um, you, you really had the opportunity, the Lord used Professor Jeff so that you could have an opportunity to work at Canada Christian College. And then um, you had the opportunity um, to not only just say, well, I know him, so I, I, I'm going to just slide along and just do what I want to do, but giving yourself to studying and um, improvement and understanding, right? And that's where we're going to have this conversation about today about hermeneutics, but I just want to let my brother Joyson speak about anything he he's gotten so far okay perfect thanks for thanks for uh allowing me to <laughs> to share a few questions with professor of course of course bro so uh, miss uh professor i uh, just have maybe like a couple questions um 
I have some uh, desires as well to study theology. And uh, obviously, mm-hmm. my passion kind of grew throughout the study of the word. Uh, I'll be honest, I come back, I come from a more uh, charismatic background. And uh, okay. I realized they had a lot of theological errors in their beliefs. And throughout the studying of the word, that's where I've discovered my passion from it, right? But uh, just to mm-hmm. go back a bit to your story, you said when you were in um, in law school, right? When you were studying law, um, you believed the Lord supernaturally uh, told you that uh, you were doing your own thing and you uh, you right. were on a path that maybe wasn't necessarily the best for you, but rather you should be serving him, right? I'm kind of summarizing. Would you say it was in a literal way, as in, you heard literally like a voice of God telling you that, or you would you say it's, it was more so an impression that was so heavy that the Lord maybe put on your heart to lead you into that direction, which obviously brought you where you are today, or how how do you like how would you kind of uh, define that story in a nutshell? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, so I don't have a charismatic background, um, but. Canada Christian College, the majority of the student body is charismatic, so I'm now much more sensitive to kind of how that language is used. Um, so just to be clear, I, this was not an auditory speaking where I literally heard with my human physical ears, you know, okay. God speaking from the clouds, right? Um, but, but, yeah, so, so not, not like that. <laughs> um, but... Um, when I say supernatural, uh, for example, the night of my salvation, it was when I kind of made a wager with the Lord and started flipping through the Bible that that's something that could not occur naturally occurred. Right. And similarly in law school, it was while I was just praying as I do, you know, most, if not all days, um, that there was just this very clear, unequivocal feeling any, you know, and it's hard to put into words. Um, I, I will say this both on your own personal journey, but also just for the listeners. Um, on one hand, and this again, it's just my own personal opinion. Um, on one hand, we shouldn't, uh, be skeptical or not believe that outward acts of power and supernatural events ever occur, right? So at least in my Christian life, they've occurred multiple times. Um, however, I don't think we need to seek after those experiences either. And I don't think we always need those experiences of confirmation. And at least for me personally, it's really only been at moments of my, like actually having a negative spiritual trajectory or a weakness of faith that God has had to intervene in powerful ways. <laughs> Actually, when I'm close to the Lord and when I'm consistently one with him in my walk and my spiritual journey, um, in, in a very real sense, the speaking actually gets much quieter and much more uh, normal. Mm. Uh, so for example, like when I, the night I got saved, it was because I was living a, a very negative life, right? when I went to law school is because I kind of turned away from my calling. And in another instance, a few years ago is because I was going through a particular, uh, negative spiritual season where I just wasn't contacting the Lord as much. Right. So 
I would almost say that these types of experiences are more like wake up calls. The Lord is like reaching down and saying like, yeah. stop and, and, and realign your life with me. Right. Um, and really I just one biblical story to kind of support this view of spirituality. You know, when Elijah, he goes up to, um, the brook because he's very discouraged about the situation with Ahab and Jezebel. And he, you know, he tells God, you know, I'm, I'm, all, I'm here all alone, right? And then all these things start happening. It says an earthquake comes, but God was not in the earthquake. And fire comes, but God was not in the fire. And a wind comes, but God was not in the wind. And then suddenly there's a still small voice. That's and that still small voice says that there are 7,000 who have not yet kneeled to Baal, right? And so in the same way with us, I think, we often try to look for the outward and the powerful and think that's where God is. But really, I think the vast majority of communication between us and God occurs in these quiet moments with a, a still small voice that's leading and directing us on our path. Please, please continue. Oh. I know you have your questions. <laughs> and sorry, just, just a quick um, in, introduction. Just so you know, on, on our podcast, my friend Joyson, we call him the theologian because, as you will see, Professor, the questions will get very, very deep, very, very deep. So we call him the theologian. Always do that, but honestly, yeah, it's, it's something I love to do. Is I like anything regarding theology. I love talking about it because I think at the core of everything, it's important to know what you believe and why you believe what you believe. Because especially right. when it comes to the things of God, everyone has a different view of God, right? Even yet, the the uh, People that are not believers, the the deities, right? So at the end of the day, I think it really matters, and it's something we need to take to heart because the way you view God will determine how you worship Him, which may be in truth or in error, right? And I think that really matters, right? So, anyways, um, just to kind of go back to what I was saying, basically the reason why I asked that question is because I've realized um, in the modern church, especially in a lot of charismatic circle. And I'm not saying this in a diminishing way or in a rude way. Like a lot of people use this language of God told me or God said this to me. But at the end of the day, it's like there's no objective way to determine if that's true or not. And I believe these are things we need to take really seriously. Because when someone put God's name on something, it carries divine authority in something we shouldn't be taking lightly. And I believe, of course, right. if God wants to literally even speak to a donkey of course he will that's that, that that's not the issue he, he did it in the bible and i don't see why he wouldn't be able to do so but for the sake of i guess our listeners or people that use these languages often i think it's important to determine what that means and implications of it to be more careful to not just associate anything to god's name lightly that's why personally um when i believe the lord is leading me to do something which upon my heart I will use a language that maybe that will resemble something such as I believe the Lord is leading me into doing this. And it's something that's burdening my heart. Right. But I wouldn't necessarily say God told me this, you know, and there's not, I wouldn't say there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but I guess because of my experience, it's something I've learned um, to be more careful about because God's name is holy and his name shouldn't be taken lightly. So, I guess I'll just kind of give you some background as to uh, why I asked the question. And I guess I like how you clarify. You made it clear that it's when it's really like a literal voice, but it was um, a supernatural act of God. And at the same time, 
God maybe used a heavy impression to bring you where you are now and something that I admire that you were able to clarify. Because in the, in the light of, I guess, what we're this season, men are so orthodoxy. We want to go back to sound doctrine and the importance of uh, being led by biblical truth in everything that we do. But yeah, I, th- I just, I just kind of wanted to clarify that. And uh, yeah. I'm Absolutely. Gonna... And just to interject one item too, um, I'm actually very uncomfortable with the language when people just say, God told me this, God told me that in a very casual way. Right. So <laughs> when I, when I point to these very kind of discreet experiences, you know, so I got saved in uh, 2007 until now. Yeah. So now it's 16 years, right? So within 15 years, I point to three or four experiences where I'm like, those were direct yeah. out of 16 years, right? So I, I, I do think that it can lead people into error. Um, and it's just not so good to just try and state that every feeling you have every week of your life, Oh God said this, God said that. Right. Yeah. Um, we, we, we do need to discern, uh, speaking that we receive, even if it is during a time of prayer, we still need to discern it first of all. And second of all, anything that we believe we receive from the Lord has to be measured both against scripture as well as fellowship with other believers. Right. So you need the confirmation of the body you need scripture and even your environment plays a role too, right? Mm-hmm. Like the Lord, you know, you could feel like, Oh, the Lord called me to give up my job and go to the democratic Republic of the Congo or something. Right. But you know, if you have a wife and five children at home and, and you leaving, they're going to starve. Yeah. Like even your environment <laughs> doesn't match necessarily that speaking. Right. And, and one thing I think we need to be cautious about as well is God has a way, but he also has this timing. So even if he calls us to do something, that doesn't mean he calls us to do it right then. Right? right? And, and we also need to discern that, again, with scripture, but also with the confirmation of the believers as well as our just like practical human environment. So. Mm. Oh, beautiful. It's, that's, that's powerful. This is, this is why you're on the podcast, Professor. <laughs> why you're here. <laughs> But um, this is a perfect segue, even as you're mentioning um, the understanding and the interpretation of scripture. And we, we just wanted to um, speak a little bit to the importance of hermeneutics. So for that, that's a big word. So that might scare some people. But um, since you, you taught the course hermeneutics, you taught it to me, um, I ask for you just please quickly explain what is hermeneutics? Sure. So hermeneutics is an academic term that refers to the philosophy of interpreting any text, right? But when it's used uh, in relation to Christians, then it's just, I mean, the simplest way to put it is kind of what tools or what lenses do we use to read the Bible? So what you could imagine is that every person, even if they just say, oh, I just read the Bible for what it says. That statement in itself doesn't make sense. Every single person in this world reads the Bible through a particular uh, set of glasses, Mm -hmm. right? And so each kind of hermeneutic or each interpretive approach is kind of like putting a different color lens in those glasses. So, you know, you can read the Bible through, let's say, the lens of history. And then that causes certain elements of the Bible to pop out 
then it causes other aspects of the Bible to kind of fade to the background, right? Um, but just to be clear, every person who has walked this earth has an in ha, has their own hermeneutic, whether or not they realize it. It's true. Okay. Thank you so much, Professor, for giving giving us a, a broader definition of hermeneutics. Um, I think hermeneutics matter because, um, I guess, when it comes to the context of the Bible, I, I guess I personally define it more so as the art of biblical interpretation, the art or science or of biblical interpretation. And I really think it matters to kind of go back to even what I was saying because at the end of the day, everyone has a specific view of God, which is why theology matters. And I think theology is defined from um, the Greek word theo, which means God, and ology, which means to study, which is really the study of God. So when you come, when it comes to hermeneutics, I think the lens through which one's approach the Bible will define how they perceive God. And if it is wrong, it can lead to wrong worship at the same time. So kind of explain to us why theology matters and not just theology, why sound doctrine matter. The reason why I'm asking that is because we live in a day and age where a lot of people have this, um, personally, I think, silly understanding that everyone can have their own sort of truth and we can still be okay. And I don't really believe that. I believe truth is really objective because as Jesus even said in John 17, sanctify them in your word, your word is truth. So if God's word is truth, but everyone has a different version of truth, then we can't all be right. Is that everyone is wrong or some are right, some are wrong? So just to kind of uh, get back into that, why do you think it really matters? And what is considered sound doctrine? Because even one of the qualifica- qualification of an overseer, according to Titus 1, is to be able to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. And if that's the case, the implication is that there is such thing as sound doctrine. And if there is such thing as sound doctrine, that the opposite is also true. There is, sound, there is also the opposite, which means there can be unsound doctrine, doctrine which is not sound. So what would you define as sound doctrine? And why do you think theology matters in order to interpret the Bible in a way that will lead you to get to a place of sound doctrine for all the Christians, especially the leaders, pastors, and people that are in a position of authority in a church? Yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot kind of embedded in that discussion and conversation. Mm. Um, so first of all, just to kind of start from the foundation, yes, there is only one truth, right? So actually Christ himself says, I am the way and the truth, right? So the truth is both um, a person, is Christ himself, and is conveyed through the scriptures, which are God-breathed and spirit-inspired, right? Um, that being said, I, I do want to kind of hold two things in tension. I think that, and this is what I teach in most of my courses, there are core doctrinal truths that I would refer to as the central line um, that you must hold to these particular truths to be considered an Orthodox Christian. And this is both in light of scripture as well as just the historical development of the church, right? So number one, you must believe the Bible is the word of God. 
Mm. Number two, the Bible reveals that God is triune. Number three, the Bible reveals that God was incarnated to be a God-man, Jesus Christ. Number four, this God-man, Jesus Christ, carried out God's plan of salvation, which we can refer to as God's economy. Yeah. Number five, in this plan of uh, in, in this plan of salvation, the Holy Spirit was given to human beings to live within them, and even by virtue of living within human beings, the entire triune God lives within human beings. Number six, every human being that is indwelt by the triune God uh, comprises the universal body of Christ, the church. And then number seven, Christ is coming again. So there are debates about these seven points, right? So, oh, it's Christ coming before the tribulation or after the tribulation, or is there a real tribulation or a real millennium? Like there are all these debates, right? But in my estimation, these seven commitments at least need to be affirmed by a believer. So if a believer doesn't affirm one of those seven, that is what I would consider unsound doctrine that must be refuted. Like if someone denies the Trinity, denies the divinity of Christ, right? Like that is a problem. So then when it comes to other doctrines though, when it comes to how should we baptize people in the name of Jesus or in the name of the Trinity uh, with the bread and cup, should we have one cup or many cups? Right. Um, with, uh, with tongues, do we speak in tongues or not speak in tongues? Yeah. Now these questions lead to divisions in the body of Christ mm-hmm. because people elevate them to the core commitments of what defines the believer or not. Right. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think that these are important questions and I do believe the Bible has answers to these questions. But I believe, first of all, and we see this in the in Ephesians chapter four. Yeah. The first the first commandment in that chapter, essentially, at the which is toward the beginning of chapter four, mm-hmm. is that we need to be diligent to keep the oneness of the spirit. Right. So that means the believers need to be one. Yeah. And then at the end of chapter four, in, in Ephesians four sixteen, it says, "Until we arrive." Or sorry, in four thirteen. In four thirteen. It says, until we arrive at the oneness of the faith. So what I believe the Apostle Paul and the New Testament apostles are are arguing is that the foundation is that we're one in spirit. And by being one and having charitable and respectful discussion, we will arrive at the oneness of the faith, the oneness of sound doctrine. Right. But I think in the modern day, we reverse that. We say, first, we need to have all the sound doctrine in our congregation, and then afterwards, we can be one in spirit. Yep. So what ends up happening is you could even have, like, so you said you're from a charismatic background, you could have two charismatic churches. One says tongues are the only sign of salvation. Another one says tongues are one of the signs of salvation. Another one says only speak in tongues at home. And then all of a sudden, you have three congregations, and this is not a salvific matter. The New Testament is not reve- revealing that this way, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I mean, the the wonderful thing about the New Testament, actually, is that the bar for salvation is, is quite low. It all, it's available to all human beings. Romans 10, 9, right? Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved, mm-hmm. right? So, um so that's what I would say. That all of that said, though, so that's one side, 
right? I, I don't want to elevate doctrine to a point where it divides the body. On the other side, proper biblical interpretation is needed in order to arrive at sound doctrine. <laughs> and so, so this is why um, having a proper tool set, having the proper glasses, the proper lenses is needed uh, for our spiritual growth and maturity and progress. So I, I just have a quick question because I know Joyce is going to keep hitting Jesse. <laughs> so you mentioned having the correct lens, right? And earlier you had mentioned yeah. um, that some people read the Bible from a historical perspective. Some in this day and age read it from a logical or a scientific perspective. But for a believer or somebody who wants to view the Bible with the correct hermeneutical approach, what would you advise or what do you suggest that the Bible teaches as the correct way to read the Bible and to interpret the Bible? Right. So this, of course, is a loaded question. <laughs> um, Only loaded question James Squared. <laughs> so let, let, I'll take one step back and I'll offer my own thoughts on this. So first of all, there are ways that we should not approach the Bible um, if we are regenerated believers. It doesn't mean these approaches have nothing to offer, but they should not be the primary reason we come to the Bible. So the Bible primarily is not a book of history. It has history, it has true history, but it's not the same as a history textbook. So we should not approach the Bible primarily for history. Similarly, the Bible is not a science textbook. It has scientific truths. It tells us about how we were created. It tells us about our eternal destiny. That's all good. That's all true. And we should not come to the Bible primarily for science. So there are kind of two ways that I approach the Bible first and foremost. First of all, I believe that the Bible preeminently is a book of life. So when God first creates Adam and Eve in the garden, he doesn't give them a list of commandments. He doesn't give them the guide to ethical living. He doesn't give them history or science textbook. He places them in the garden and he only has one edict, one decree. And he says that there's a tree of life in the center of the garden and you can eat of every other tree except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? So what God first and foremost was concerned with was man's eating and man's obtaining the tree of life, right? And we see this again in the New Testament. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have life abundantly. And so, of course, some people read that, and this is true, by the way, that, oh, he went to the cross, so that would receive eternal life. Amen, that's true. But where else does he talk about life? In John six sixty three, he says, the, the, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words which I speak to you are spirit and are life. In 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the Apostle Paul says, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Mm -hmm. So within Scripture, then, if we contact the Spirit of the Bible, that might be new terminology for some, but if we contact the Spirit of Scripture with our human spirit, we will receive life. Um, at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, you have the tree of life and you have rivers coming out of the garden. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22, in the New Jerusalem, you have the tree of life and the river of water of life. 
You know, if you study any book, the beginning of the book and the end of the book are the most important part. <laughs> you could almost skip over the middle and, and you would have the main message of the book, right? I'm not encouraging anyone to skip over the middle of the Bible by any means, <laughs> but, <laughs> but this should at least show us that the bookends of the Bible, that, you know, of course there's a historical development of how the books of the Bible came together, but we must believe that God was sovereign over the arrangement of the book. And at the beginning of the Bible, at the end of the Bible, what you see is that God wants to present himself to human beings as light. Now, the second item that I would say dovetails or aligns with this goal of God giving us life is that God desires a bride. You know, in Genesis, when Adam is naming all the animals and he says, you know, oh, there, eventually Adam comes to this point where it's like, well, there's no one for me. And then God puts him to sleep. Out of it pulls out a rib, out of that rib builds a woman, and then Adam looks at this woman and says, Blood of my blood, flesh of my flesh, I shall call this one Eve, right? Adam is made in the image of God. That means that his desire for a counterpart matches God's desire for a counterpart. We see and we see the Apostle Paul unveiling this in Ephesians five. Because, you know, and this is read at a lot of weddings. I'm actually officiating a wedding this weekend. And the, these verses are often read. That's right. <laughs> right? And they're off the red. Husbands, love your wife. If Christ loved the church, be so love for her. Wives, submit to your husband. And then it talks about Christ washing and sanctifying the church. So it talks about marriage. And then Ephesians 5.31, it says that, you know, it, it, it restates the Genesis narrative. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his parents and the two shall become one flesh. Right. But then in verse 32, Paul gives us the key. He says, this mystery is great speaking about human marriage, but then all of a sudden he says, but I speak regarding Christ and the church. Wow. Right at the end of the Bible, we see the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. husband yeah. So really, and you know, you see, you even see glimpses of this in the old Testament, you know, Isaiah 54, five, it says, God, your maker is your husband, right? In the book of Hosea, God is talking about courting Israel as a wife. You see that number one, God wants to give human beings life or even himself as life. But then number two, he wants the believers to be sanctified and transformed to form a corporate bride. And so in that sense, you could say the Bible in the holiest sense is a divine romance. So I think these two guiding principles will save us from a lot of nitpicking and a lot of discord between believers. And again, don't get me wrong. I have views on baptism. I have views on all, all sorts of the different doctrines and items in the Bible. But I do believe, yeah, but I do believe that the overarching message of the Bible that again, it, it gives us a foundation upon which believers can be one with one another. That the Bible is a book of life. The Bible is a divine romance. Thank you so much, Professor. Okay. Perfect. So um, just to go back to uh, the topic that we were on, uh, the key tenet of the faith. Um, yeah, I definitely mm -hmm. agree that uh, there are some core Christian doctrine that any professing believer must hold to in order to be affirmed as a Christian. But uh, just to kind of piggyback into that, um, 
if some example you gave, for instance, regarding uh, Dunk Speaking, the view of the Trinity, uh, I don't you assume you probably know. There's this uh, group called One Pentecostals, for instance, and they mm-hmm. believe that the Trinity is not true. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity, and uh, they hold to the view that uh, God is kind of one being that have different modes, and which is uh, explained as modalism. That's that's what that's what they call modalism. So, I personally believe modalism is heresy, and uh, just because <laughs> there's there's no other term for it. <laughs> And uh, the reason why I think it matters, um, I have a lot of brothers and sisters that um, go to Pentecostal churches, which is fine. Uh, it's just, as I grew more in my understanding of the word, I had a lot of theological differences, right? First of all, when I read First Corinthians 12, it's clear that not all speaking tongues. So there's no way around that. Secondly, if you read uh, chapter 14, it's clear that at church, there shouldn't be more than three speakers and there must be an interpreter, which must speak in turn. And not just that, um, scripture is clear that all Christians are baptized by, by the Spirit. So when it comes to theological differences, for instance, if someone holds to the view that, okay, I can go to church and we can have thousands of people, let's say all speaking in tongues at the same time, and that's correct, I, I don't believe that's correct and there's no excuse for that. Because the text is clear, you have to do all sort of weird gymnastics around the plain teaching of the text to arrive to different conclusion. Now, according to what um, my experience is, I divide where some Pentecostal will believe that because you never spoke any tongues in your life, you haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which I believe is heret- it's completely heretical. The reason why I say that is because when you read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the text plainly says that all were baptized by the Spirit as so from one body. As so from one body. And literally the Greek word for uh, baptism means to immerse, which implies that if you're part of the body, you are immersed as a member of the body of Christ in the body of Christ, right? So the reason why I think it's dangerous to claim that, for instance, that you can be Christian without having the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that borderline, it can really become a different gospel. And I kind of think it's disturbing a bit because if you're going to claim that someone is Christian without having the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is somehow proven by an external experience, literally, if you're not careful, you can really say that you can be Christian without having the Holy Spirit. And Paul literally said in Romans chapter 8 that there is no such thing as, he basically said that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to him. So it can't be that you're saved and you don't and you don't have the Holy Spirit. Or like there's no such thing as, as, as a partial saved person. It's either you're saved and you have the Holy Spirit or you don't, right? But a lot of uh teaching that I heard about it, people will say, Oh well, you can't be a Christian without having the baptism, which is heresy. Personally, that's that, that's in my opinion, because if, if you're not baptized by the spirit, then you don't belong to the body. And I think that's that's really um unbiblical. So my question to you will be, what do you consider false teaching, even in the midst of people who you agree with are genuine believers, but their biblical understanding is off, and how can that can be misleading and literally dangerous? Because whether we like it or not, scripture is clear that <laughs> there are false teachers. There will be false teachers. There will be people that will perform false signs and wonders. 
all these things. So in the midst of error, how would you like kind of admonish people to seek for truth and to be careful not to take their error as form of truth and to be open to correction? I don't know if it's, it kind of sounds like a loaded question, but what if you want, question. I can break it down. Kind of. No, there's lots of different pieces to it. So first of all, I appreciate what you said when you mentioned that people can be genuine believers and yet promote false doctrine. And I think that is a valuable um, insight and understanding of the body of Christ to acknowledge. Um, for example, I also agree that we both have the indwelling spirit and baptism of the spirit available immediately upon salvation. Yeah. Um, I also believe that tongues will not be spoken by every believer, namely because in first Corinthians 12, it's listed among different gifts, right? Exactly. So, and, and, it, and, and really the whole point of that chapter is that different believers have different functions. Yeah. So that means like there may be some believers who speak in tongues the same way there may be some believers who prophesy in particular ways and some believers who teach in particular ways and these types of things. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I suppose what I would say just as a, as an introduction is on our side, we need to be strict with ourselves. So what the Bible clearly states, we need to be strict to affirm that and adhere to that. On the other side, and this is why I said that your, your statement and your viewpoint is very valuable, we also need to be uh, very broad with others. Um, so, for example, if someone's coming to a congregation that I meet in and they hold what I believe to be false doctrine, I still need to allow them to meet with me. I should not reject them. Um, However, when it comes to correction, and I think this is actually, you know, I have two kids and my wife is pregnant. We're about to have a third later this year. Um, You know, when we administer correction, it needs to be done with a proper spirit. And that proper spirit is a spirit of love and humility, right? And so I think when we come to believers that we know hold false doctrine, First and foremost, like if we just come up and the the first word out of our mouth is like, you're, you're a borderline self-teacher. I'm not sure that's so helpful. Um, I think if we can establish a relationship of trust and love with them, yeah, and then from there kind of work through the Bible together in a cooperative way, um, I, I believe this will yield the most positive fruit. Now, that being said, are there going to be people that we meet we have the proper spirit of love and humility. Uh, we work through scripture with them and they still cling to false doctrines. Absolutely. Right. Like they're, they're going to be many intransient and, and stubborn people <laughs> that we meet in our lives. And you know, if it's with, if it's not within our own congregation, then I suppose the best approach after we approach them one or two or three times is just to continue to pray for them. And perhaps the Lord will open their eyes. If it's within our congregation, um, and especially if you're in a position of leadership in your congregation, then you do have to perhaps um, take a, a stricter approach, right? So in the pastoral epistles, we're told, you know, a factitious man uh, after one or two admonitions then refuse, right? And so if someone is causing, and again, we, we, just, we have to be discerning, right? So if someone holds wrong doctrine, but they're not talking to anyone about it, 
then amen. You know, it's fine. If you have an individual who, for example, let's say you have a congregation and they're coming in and every week during every meeting, they're standing up and telling people, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Then at a particular juncture, there may be the need to have a, a very strong talk with them and perhaps, you know, not allow them to speak in the meetings anymore. Right. So, so this, it requires a, a, a balance of love, but also care for the rest of the flock. Right. So, we're told in First Corinthians, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And there are issues. In the, they don't actually even have to be doctrinal. Like a little immorality leavens the whole lump, right? So exactly. Paul says, remove <laughs> this man from your midst. Um, but, but also a little divisiveness that's based on doctrine can also leaven the whole lump, right? So, so I, I, I think these, these types of conversations and, and this concern it really depends on the context. Like if it's a friend of yours and you have the grounds to even sit over coffee every week and, you know, read the Bible lovingly all the way to the other end of the spectrum, like debate and discuss a bit. I think that's fine. Um, when it's people we don't know as well, when it's people within our congregation versus outside of our congregation, like there, there just need to be different approaches. Right. Mm. Ultimately though, everything you're saying is true. Um, Number one, believers can be genuine and hold false doctrine. Number two, a believer can be a victorious Christian in, on the day of their deathbed and die holding raw doctrine. Will it affect their salvation? I would say potentially not, uh, depending on what raw doctrine it is. Um, and by salvation, what I mean is not just their eternal salvation, but also their uh, dispensational reward or punishment during the age of the millennium. Um, but regardless, is it dangerous to other people? And for sure it is, right? right. <laughs> if you hold particular false doctrine, especially if they're related to salvation, it causes you to preach a different gospel. So even if it doesn't affect the person preaching the false gospel, even if they themselves are saved, it can potentially hinder other people from being saved. And that's quite serious, right? So... So yes, I, I mean, I think the exercise of discernment, determining, you know, how much are they talking about this, right. coming to them in love, studying scripture with them, if there's a way to do that, like these are all um, necessary approaches to dealing with this issue. Okay. Powerful, powerful, powerful. We're just going to ask one more question because we know that you're a busy man and <laughs> there was already some technical difficulties and everything, but again, we're so grateful that you you took the time to to um, come on to this podcast, but Joyce and he has one more question. So raise yourself again. So um, <laughs> kind of just to kind of follow up on my last question and uh, to kind of summarize a bit everything, whether we like it or not, um, I believe during that doctrine matter, right? Even when it comes to secondary issues, it still does matter. So when Paul says in Romans chapter sixteen that we need to mark and avoid those who cause division according to the doctrine that have been taught. <laughs> I mean, the implications are pretty clear that if someone is teaching false doctrine, that you need to divide from that person. And even in, uh, I believe, in the book of Timothy, I believe, I don't know if it's Timothy or Titus. I believe, I believe it's in Titus. He said to warn the, the heretic one, and then the second time, and if you warn him the second time, he still doesn't want to listen, then have nothing to do with him. So in all of this, 
how do you, um, first of all, I assume you believe that there are false teachers in the church. I, I mean, I don't think there, there's no way around that, really. It is true that there are some teachers, there are and there will be false teachers in the church that pervert the gospel, even Paul said in Galatians 1 that uh, if anyone, whether us or an angel from heaven, preaches to us, it preaches to you a different gospel, let him be a curse. And I mean, there's no way around that. And Jesus even make it plain that in Matthew 7, that many who prophesy his name, cast out demons, do miracles, and then he will tell them he never knew them. Mm. Therefore, we can't really conclude that every single person that profess the name of Christ, even in a genuine fashion, are necessarily saved, right? So, to kind of summarize up, so how would you, um, what advice would you give to believers that they can be genuine believers, but their theology is wrong? And if, let's say, they're under the leadership of someone that knows the truth, that has been corrected, and has been shown different ways to approach scriptures in a truthful fashion, but their leaders still refuse to adhere to the truth, what would you advise to those type of believers for their sanctification? Because I genuinely believe that one of the work of the Holy Spirit is to sanctify the believer, even when it comes to sound doctrine. I believe if the Holy Spirit can save you from sin, and if false teaching is a sin, he will also save you from that. Because he's, he's the spirit of truth. He doesn't lead you into error, right? So what advice would you give to those believers that are maybe in places that don't know that there's clearly false doctrine, but it seems that because something is popular or more uh, heavily accepted by their surroundings, they feel the need to just accept it for what it is, you know? What would you advise to those people that the genuine is safe, but they're wrong in certain areas? And maybe the Holy Spirit is showing them the truth, but for them it's grass to accept it. What would you advise to them? And also to those actual false teachers that we know pervert the truth and needs to come to repentance. So I guess it's like two questions, which is like one coin with both sides. What would you kind of uh, respond to that? Well, so first of all, I mean, I think a very simple answer to your First question, at least, is if the Spirit reveals something to you, mm-hmm. you have to be faithful to answer what the Spirit speaks to you, right? So mm-hmm. there's no excuse. If the Spirit reveals to you that you are under false teaching, um, it is irresponsible and really a rejection of God to simply, quote-unquote, accept it because it's just easier that way, <laughs> right? So, so, of course, um, if the spirit is leading us, uh, for example, to know I'm in congregation X and they preach this, but that is, that is not biblical. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think a very simple answer is you now have to leave that place. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, I mean, to, and, and again, this is the distinction I want to make, you know, even in Romans, uh, 16, 17, it's talking about within a single congregation, yeah. marking those who make the vision, right? So that's, that's a very different issue than someone outside of a congregation okay. who's teaching false teaching, right? So there, there is a strictness within a congregation to deal with divisive brothers and sisters in a different way. Okay. Right? Um, now, 
for false teachers, I mean, if someone knowingly is promoting what they know to be false teaching, that's very different than someone who just believes false teachings wholeheartedly and is promoting that, right? Yeah. If someone knowingly is promoting false teaching, it, it's very difficult from, I mean, you know, I'm not the judge, the Lord knows whether or not they're a genuine believer, but if they're knowingly lying and misleading Christians, it would seem to me that it's less likely <laughs> that they're a genuine believer. Yeah. Um, if they simply hold to false teachings, but they don't know they're false, that's a very different category. So they're doing this out of sincerity. And again, this is where I think approaching them in a spirit of love, a spirit of humility, walking through the scriptures with them, perhaps the spirit, the Lord will have the way to work in them. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, advice in a nutshell, just to answer kind of, I think the main burden of what your question is, is, perhaps you know of individuals who are in congregations right now and, and they even tell you, Oh, I go there cause all my family goes there, but I know some of the stuff they say is a bit off. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you know that it is your responsibility to not be there. Right. <laughs> right? So, right. so I, and, and this is what even we're told in the gospel to whom much is given much is expected. So as, the Lord graciously and mercifully bequeaths us with knowledge of the scriptures and, 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 and illumines us to know whether or not it's a moral or ethical or doctrinal matter. It is up to us then to respond to that. And actually just one item I want to throw in there is if we reject the spirit's leading in a particular matter, he's not going to grant us further revelation. Right. So if you just decide, Oh, because it's more comfortable to be in this congregation, therefore I'll stay. It's very possible that the Lord will not continue to speak to you in that way. Right. Like you'll still be a genuine believer. You'll still be saved, but you're not going to be able to grow. You're not going to be able to mature. You're not going to attain to, um, the end of your spiritual journey in the same way as if you were sensitive and responsive to the spirit's leading. Right. So it's true. What a conversation. Wow. Professor Michael Reardon. Professor Dr. Michael Reardon. Doctor, you need to He's doctor. even a doctor, too. <laughs> Guys, we are so grateful to um, have the opportunity to speak with Professor Reardon. And hopefully, we'll be able to host him on again because I know that there are a lot more questions questions and topics to discuss yeah. i know joy said it was just, he was on page <laughs> paragraph <laughs> one not even page surface. one paragraph one just barely touched the, the surface right but um professor reardon for those who might want to get into contact with you or any organization that you are involved with um is there any way that um people would be able to contact you please please make it available if possible sure um yeah, so I think the easiest way to contact me outside of uh, when I'm grading finals or doing thesis evaluations, oh, uh, you can email me at, uh, at CCC. So my email address is M-R-E-A-R-D-O-N at CanadaChristianCollege.com. Um, if, yeah, my time is limited by teaching these types of things, but if someone really was truly desirous of even setting up some, you know, 30 minute face to face item 
you know, we can try and schedule a time in my office. I'm in the office Monday through Thursday, 10 to 6. Um, for those who are interested in studying further, if you end up taking a class at college, then you'd see me every week for two hours a week, right? Yeah. So, um, and then, yeah, I think for those who specifically even know Mark personally, uh, if they have questions or want to set something up, then we can always try to work something out as well. So. Sounds good. And honestly, again, I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to take courses with you at Canada Christian College. And a shameless plug, honestly, there are many, 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 many interesting and sound um, professors and, and teachers at Canada Christian College. So if, if you're interested, I'm not just saying it just because I go there, but it opens your mind, right? And as a believer, it's important to, to be open and humble to learn and... Um, I appreciate what you you have taught and 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 said here today, Professor. And we'll definitely talk later, guys. Thank you for tuning into JM Square, Joyce. And you have any final words as we close this episode? Of course. Thank you so much, Professor, for coming on. It was really resourceful and a blessing to hear your wisdom and to give us some good um, biblical understanding of how to approach. Um, divisive issues especially in the body of christ um and i think that like these type of things are important for all of us especially in the season where we are ministers to orthodoxy you know the importance to go back to sound doctrine to learn how to respond to truth and to be uh humble enough to to grow in a way that that's pleasing to the lord correctly so thank you so much for coming in I hope we can have you again. I have so much more questions I would like to ask, but I know for the, <laughs> I, I know I know for the sake of time, uh, yeah, we can we will have to keep it short for today. But definitely, we hope to have you. Sure. Yes. Back on our podcast. Well, I'd, lo- I'd love to come back. Uh, definitely, summer is generally the best time with with less classes to teach. So feel free to set something up. Of course, <laughs> absolutely. So thank you again, everyone, for tuning in to JM Squared. There will be more further information in the links and the links in our bio. If you want to keep um, in contact with JM Squared, you can check us out on Instagram at JM Squared Podcast. You can also check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, everywhere that podcasts are. And you can even find us even on YouTube, too. We're, we're starting our YouTube stuff, too. So, you know, it's long overdue, but we're doing what we have to do at J-M-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D. And thank you so much for rocking and supporting. And until next time, this is your boy, Mark. This is your boy, Joyson. And we'll talk to you on the next episode. Peace. You are now listening. To jam squared, squared, squared.